Well, welcome to the closing session. I'm Stephen Heinz, the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And as a co-founder of the Iran Project and a long supporter and admirer of the Atlantic Council, I'm delighted to see so many people in this room for this whole conversation, which I think has been absolutely outstanding all morning. And we are very fortunate that the wrap-up speaker is somebody uniquely able to share with us some insights into the president's thinking about what happens next. Can the US and Iran find other ways to work together after the successful negotiations of the JCPOA and Iran's compliance with their nuclear obligations? It is really a privilege for me to introduce Ben Rhodes. Everybody here knows who Ben is. Everybody knows he's the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communication. And in that role, he has the responsibility of helping to craft and shape the key points that the President wishes to convey to the global public about his foreign and security policy priorities. It's a huge responsibility, and I think it's made even more complex in this instance to be a speechwriter for a person who probably is the most eloquent writer of any president since Abraham Lincoln is a tough challenge. <laughs> and yet Ben has done it with grace and with elegance and with brilliance. If you go back and just read the kind of body of work of major foreign policy addresses that the president has given, what you see is an unusually well-constructed, well-argued set of views, whether you agree with them or not. You can't help but admire the language and the force and the meaning. And Ben deserves an enormous amount of credit for having the kind of relationship with the President of the United States in which he is able to craft those messages in a way that meets the standards of this extraordinary presidential writer himself. So Ben has been at the President's side, as you know, since the primary campaigns starting in 2007 and through the election, and he's been there ever since. And he has been a keen participant in the White House strategy of negotiating with Iran and of explaining that strategy to the American public and to the global public. So what we're gonna do this afternoon is Ben is gonna speak for about 20 minutes and offer his thoughts about how this administration, how this president sees this new, qualitatively new relationship with Iran going forward and then I'm gonna pose a couple of questions and we'll open it up to questions from the audience. And I just wanna ask everybody when we do that to stand, identify yourself to Ben, let him know your affiliation and do try to keep your questions brief so that we can get as much of a discussion as possible. So please join me in welcoming Ben Rhodes. Well, for that uh, generous uh, introduction. Um, and I'm very pleased to be here uh, with the Iran Project. Um, and I'm shorter than Stephen, so I'm just gonna do this. Um, for years, 
uh, you've really done extraordinary work uh, on one of the toughest issues in our foreign policy. Uh, and I know that uh, working on issues related to pursuing a peaceful dialogue with Iran can be a little controversial here uh, in the city as well. So thank you for your uh, patience and persistent work, uh, again, for many years. It's made a, an extraordinary difference. Um, I will start by just reviewing uh, how we got all the way to where we are today, uh, because I think that that's very important to uh, guiding how we think about this relationship uh, going forward. Um, and as Stephen said, I went to work for the president during the primary campaign. And the first week uh, that I went to work for him, uh, he was in a debate about Iran. Uh, and he had recently said in a YouTube debate, uh, which was an innovative format back in the Stone Age of 2007, um, that he would engage the leaders of a number of adversarial nations, including Iran, without preconditions. And the conventional wisdom at the time was that that had been a mistake. But one of my very first instructions from uh, Barack Obama was that we should double down on this position. Uh, and in the first major speech I wrote for him, uh, where he said he would go into Pakistan to pursue Osama bin Laden, he also reaffirmed that he would pursue diplomacy with Iran over its nuclear program. So it's easy to say that the positions that people take in presidential campaigns don't matter. Uh, but if you actually look back to the summer of 2007, uh, it provided a very good roadmap for what Barack Obama would do as president. Um, and when he came into office, he set about immediately uh, pursuing that diplomatic course. Um, so I'll review our efforts to engage Iran, what has been accomplished and what hasn't, uh, and then uh, what lessons we can draw from that for the future. Uh, first, to go back to January of 2009, uh, we found Iran and the United States drifting towards greater confrontation. Uh, there had been initial engagement on Afghanistan, in particular after 9-11, uh, but at that point we were sharply at odds, uh, particularly within Iraq. The Iranian nuclear program had advanced steadily, uh, moving from uh, zero centrifuges to over 5,000. Uh, and the president knew that this issue would be front and center in our relationship. So at the beginning of the administration, he set out to do two things. First, he addressed the Iranian nuclear program as a threat to global nonproliferation, not just a bilateral uh, or even a regional security challenge. Uh, he made this about international norms that apply to everybody, including the United States and Iran. He reaffirmed our own commitment to seek a world without nuclear weapons uh, and to meet our own NPT obligations by initiating negotiations for a new START treaty. Throughout 2009, from his Prague speech to a UN Security Council resolution that affirmed the Prague agenda, he sought to reinvigorate the consensus around nonproliferation. Uh, and he repeatedly stated that Iran had the right to access peaceful nuclear energy if it met its commitments under the NPT. The second thing he did is make clear that he was willing to pursue diplomacy without preconditions. In March of 2009, on the occasion of Nowruz, he issued a message to the people and leadership of Iran that said his administration was, quote, committed to diplomacy that addresses the full range of issues before us and to pursuing constructive ties among the United States, Iran, and the international community. And he would reiterate this message with a focus on nuclear weapons in Cairo. So the reason for this approach was simple. It gave Iran the opportunity to move in a new direction, but it also put the onus on the Iranian government so that if they failed to take that opportunity, it would be clear to the world that Iran was uh, the responsible party. Uh, and that ultimately would provide the basis if we needed to apply additional pressure. Uh, and unfortunately, that is the course uh, that Iran chose in 2009. Uh, the flawed Iranian election uh, in June and the brutal suppression of peaceful protests that followed that election made it clear that we were going to have to continue to deal with President Ahmadinejad and an Iranian administration that was concerned about internal security uh, and largely disdainful of engagement with the West. Meanwhile, in September, the president publicly revealed 
Iran's covert enrichment facility in Gom, which demonstrated uh, to the world that Iran was not meeting its nonproliferation commitments. And then that fall, the nuclear negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one failed when Iran refused to accept the tentative agreement uh, in which there would be international support to fuel the Tehran research reactor in exchange for Iran shipping out some of its stocks of low enriched uranium. So by the end of 2009, uh, this initial failure of diplomacy uh, we could establish was Iran's responsibility. Uh, because of uh, the violation at Gom, because they had been offered an alternative path, uh, and because they could not agree to the modest confidence-building measures proposed in the P5 plus one. So having tested diplomacy, uh, President Obama pivoted to pressure. Uh, and thanks in part to our reset with Russia, we were able to secure UN Security Council Resolution 1929, which created the international basis uh, for comprehensive sanctions. Uh, we worked with Congress uh, to ratchet up our own authorities to impose and enforce sanctions, and that culminated in the NDAA uh, for fiscal year 2012, uh, which focused on the Iranian oil and banking sectors. Uh, of course, this was the beginning and not the end of the work, and I know there have been discussions about sanctions, uh, enforcement, and relaxation uh, today. Uh, at that time, uh, to impose uh, the broadest possible sanctions and to avert uh, risks to global uh, economic stability, uh, we had to spend many months building a coalition to enforce sanctions. Uh, and for the president, this was a top priority in his conversations. Uh, for our sanctions experts, this meant working through detailed work plans with many countries. And ultimately, the European Union imposed an oil embargo. Major importers of Iranian oil, including China, India, Japan, and South Korea, voluntarily agreed to significant reductions in their purchases of Iranian oil. Uh, and the architecture was put in place through diplomacy for sanctions to have a powerful impact. But importantly, even as the Iranian economy faced increasing pressure, we never walked away from the preference to resolve the nuclear issue through diplomacy. We made clear time and again that sanctions were a means to an end, achieving a nuclear deal, and not an end in themselves. Uh, indeed, there are many who argued for sanctioning Iran into submission. Uh, but for us, uh, no analysis of the Iranian government ever suggested that they would capitulate to that extent under pressure. And none of our international partners were signing on to permanent sanctions uh, for that purpose. Uh, so this was a, a key distinction made uh, throughout the enforcement of sanctions. The purpose was, again, to s strengthen diplomacy, not to walk away from it. So we did continue to address the nuclear issue through the P5 plus one format, but we had little progress there. So we also wanted to test whether we could establish bilateral channels for conversations with the Iranians, recognizing that we would need that option. And again, this is something I think ultimately uh, looking forward is going to be important. Of course, we had had over the years different channels to communicate with the Iranians, including uh, through the UN and New York, but none of those had facilitated uh, con a constructive discussion on nuclear issues. We did identify a potential option through Oman, though, uh, and in 2011, the Omanis helped secure the release of two American hikers who had been imprisoned in Iran. In 2012, President Obama and Secretary Clinton sent a team to Oman to determine whether or not the Omanis could establish a meeting uh, of U.S. and Iranian uh, nuclear experts. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, then-Senator Kerry also had a number of discussions with Omani officials about the prospect of Iran hosting bilateral discussions between the United States and Iran. However, as the president began his second term in 2013, we were still making no progress at all on getting to substantive negotiations with Iran in Oman or anywhere else. The sanctions were having an impact, but the Ahmadinejad administration continued to be uh, intransigent at the P5 plus one. The turning point came in June of 2013, uh, when Hassan Rouhani won the Iranian election by a healthy margin, pledging a more moderate course towards engagement with the West. 
And President Obama sent President Rouhani a letter uh, proposing a focus on nuclear negotiations. Uh, and for the first time in that type of communication, we received a, a constructive response. And that led to talks beginning fairly quickly in Oman, led by Bill Burns and Jake Sullivan, which led to a series of understandings that fed into the renewal of P5 plus 1 negotiations, beginning at the ministerial level at the uh, UN General Assembly uh, in September of 2013. Now that session was a good indication of the possibilities and the limits of engagement with the new Iranian administration. On the one hand, there was an entirely new tone to the nuclear discussions, and Secretary Kerry and Foreign Minister Zarif became the first officials from each country to meet at that level in many years. On the other hand, a meeting between the two presidents proved to be a bridge too far for the Iranian side, though the two did speak by phone the first time that had happened uh, in several decades, and they committed their teams to making quick progress towards a nuclear agreement. Within a couple of months, the P5 plus one and Iran had agreed on the joint plan of action, an interim agreement that effectively froze the Iranian program while providing some modest sanctions relief. And again, another important lesson for two nations with such deeply rooted mistrust, an interim agreement created the space for each side to determine whether the other would fulfill commitments and remain committed to achieving a comprehensive solution. I won't relive the details of the next year and a half. Uh, living it once was enough, I think, for all of us. Um, but I will highlight a few important elements, again, that I think are relevant as we think about uh, what happened and where we're headed. Uh, for us, it was obviously important that the P5 plus one stayed united throughout. But with respect to the United States and Iran, both sides were able to fulfill their commitments under the J JPOA. Uh, and each side had to find a way to resolve potential hurdles to implementation. Uh, so we were able to work through issues. Both sides had to show that they could preserve the political space in their own countries to allow for the negotiation to go forward, especially when there are multiple extensions of the timeline for talks, and there were efforts to derail talks uh, in both countries. And both sides had to spend time together, a lot of time together, at the expert level and between our diplomats in order to break the impasse and solve problems and achieve a deal. Uh, and for that, much credit goes to John Kerry and Wendy Sherman. Uh, but it's important to note that uh, the U.S. and Iran had never had discussions of this length, of this detail, at these levels. That builds trust, that allows you to get things done, and it would be impossible without engagement. Of course, once there was an actual deal last summer, we had to implement it. And for both sides, uh, this was complicated. Um, here in the United States, it meant working through a 60-day congressional review period to secure the necessary to support to allow the deal to go forward. I know that a lot has been said about our efforts on this in recent weeks, um, but I did want to make one thing clear about it. Uh, for the Iran project, they needed no convincing from the White House uh, to advocate for the Iran deal. Uh, indeed, promoting dialogue and a peaceful resolution to the Iranian nuclear issue has been the central purpose of the organization, and it's what, frankly, uh, Bill and Iris and many others had come and told us that we had to do for many years as well. Uh, but still, even as we defended the nuclear deal, this review period was a test for a diplomatic rapprochement that focused on a single issue rather than the entire relationship. You know, given the enormous differences between the United States and Iran on so many issues, including Iran's support for terrorism, its ballistic missile program, its destabilizing actions in the region, we had to simultaneously argue and make clear that we would not compromise on those issues while spending serious political capital to hold up our end of the deal on the nuclear issue. Uh, so this was complicated because things happen over the course uh, of that time period and they'll happen now uh, that are serious irritants between our two countries. Uh, but we have to be able to demonstrate that even as we address those issues, we're able to fulfill our diplomatic commitments. 
And in Iran, there was a similar necessity to beat back challenges to the deal, though it was clear that it enjoyed the broad support of the Iranian people. So, what has happened since the expiration of the review period and adoption day last October? On the deal itself, Iran has fulfilled its commitments. Two-thirds of its installed centrifuges have been dismantled and placed under IAEA monitoring. 98% of Iran's enriched uranium stockpile has been shipped out of the country. Iran's enrichment is now limited to a single facility, Natanz, which is under 24-7 IAEA monitoring. The core of Iran's Iraq reactor has been removed and filled with concrete, rendering it inoperable. And just as was said during the review period, Iran's breakout timeline has been to have enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon has been extended from two to three months to about a year. And the international community is also in a far stronger position to detect any effort to break out because of the most comprehensive verific verification regime that has ever been negotiated, which allows for the monitoring of Iran's entire supply chain. So the IEA has recently, uh, repeatedly and recently reported on this progress, so it's clear for all to see. Meanwhile, the United States and our partners have taken steps necessary to provide Iran with the sanctions relief uh, allowed for under the deal. Of course, this continues to be a challenge, uh, given the caution with which banks and companies approach a country uh, that is still facing, in many cases, very stringent sanctions. But we remain committed to meeting our obligation under the deal. And if anything, the limited nature of the relief so far makes some of the more hyperbolic criticism of the Iran deal look that much more uh, ridiculous in hindsight. Now, beyond the deal, there has been some progress uh, that would have been much harder without the nuclear negotiations. We opened a channel that allowed us to negotiate the release of five Americans held in Iran. Uh, that very much emerged out of the nuclear talks. We concluded an agreement on a long-standing claims issue that we believe uh, saves American taxpayers a significant amount of risk uh, and money in the long term. An incident that could have escalated dangerously when 10 American sailors were arrested after drifting into Iranian waters was resolved quickly because of the channels of communication that we now have with the Iranian government. All of these issues uh, are areas where we were able to communicate directly with the Iranians in ways that we were not able to do so before we had all of these diplomatic contacts because of the deal. Now, all of that said, many other aspects of Iranian behavior and U.S.-Iran relations remain unchanged. Uh, Iran has not ceased its support for terrorist organizations like Hezbollah or its threats towards Israel. Iran has continued to test ballistic missiles. Uh, from Iraq to Yemen, Iran has continued to engage in destabilizing support for proxy organizations. And despite diplomacy that has brought Iran into the discussions about resolving the Syrian civil war, Iranian support for the Assad regime continues even as the Assad regime uh, brutalizes its own people. So in short, Iran's approach to its nuclear program has changed, but thus far its broader foreign policy and the nature of its regime has not. Now, some argue that that means the deal itself wasn't worth it. We would argue exactly the opposite. Isn't it better when a government with a ballistic missile program that supports terrorism doesn't have a nuclear weapon? Uh, and in fact, the Iran deal did stop the spread of nuclear weapons to the world's most volatile region and prevented a possible war. More broadly, though, what does this mean for the future of U.S.-Iran relations? After all, it has been less than three years since President Obama spoke to President Rouhani. It's only been a few months since implementation day. Uh, in the context of a relationship that has been rooted in deep-seated mistrust, competition, and even hostility uh, since the Iranian revolution. And to put a little context around this, it's worth looking briefly at how Iran compares to the two other nations, principal nations that have been adversaries that President Obama has engaged, uh, Burma and Cuba. In Myanmar, several years ago, the military leadership of the country made a decision 
to open up their political system. And President Obama decided to engage the government and people of the country uh, aggressively at that time, working to incentivize progress, to build capacity, to develop relationships. Now, Myanmar's transition is still incomplete. Progress has been incremental. But the change has still been extraordinary. Political prisoners have been released. A democratic election has been held. There's been a peaceful transfer of power uh, to a party led by Aung San Suu Kyi. So in Burma, our engagement connected with a leadership that embraced reform. And that has allowed for a complete transformation in our bilateral relationship. In Cuba, after lengthy negotiations, the leadership of the country agreed to a process of normalizing relations. In less than two years, we have opened embassies, reached bilateral agreements, established mail, air, cruise links, and begun to open up commercial and people-to-people -people ties. And in March, President Obama became the first US president to visit the country since the Cuban Revolution. We still have profound differences on many issues, uh, including human rights and our respective political systems. But both of our governments made a strategic decision to pursue cooperation and address our differences through normalization. So Iran has important similarities and differences with these cases. The similarity is that President Obama was open to pursuing engagement to advance US interests, rather than having a policy that insisted on, in effect, regime change or capitulation as a precondition. In all three cases, engagement opened up opportunities for the United States to not simply develop relationships, but to make progress on issues that are very important to us. And doing so didn't remove pressure on these governments. In some cases, it increased pressure by removing the excuse of America's isolation, by raising public expectations in different countries, and by shifting international opinion. Now that said, the differences are also essential, and I'll put them as simply as possible. In Myanmar, they decided to change the nature of their government. Cuba decided to change the nature of its relationship with the United States. Iran decided to change the nature of its nuclear program. And so in that regard, while the nuclear deal is enormously consequential, the broader progress with, the, with Iran is more limited than these other countries. As the Supreme Leader reminds us, Iran is not changing its inherent opposition to the United States. Unlike Cuba, Iran hasn't shown interest in normalizing relations with the United States or, for instance, allowing us to open an embassy even if we wanted to do so. So, of course, it's also true that we all have not changed our own policies beyond providing nuclear-related sanctions relief. Our sanctions on terrorism, ballistic missiles, and human rights continue. Our support for Israel and our Gulf partners includes defense capabilities that are expressly meant to counter Iranian actions in the region. And our opposition to Iranian foreign policy in many areas continues. So, what lessons can we learn from all of this, and how do they apply to our relationship going forward? First, engagement creates opportunities that we deny ourselves by insisting upon isolation. The diplomatic work to achieve something like the nuclear deal takes time, personal relationships, and the ability to seize an opportunity when it presents itself. And if you keep that door to diplomacy and engagement closed, you're not going to allow yourself to have the opportunity to solve the next problem, uh, or to make headway on issues where you do have serious differences. At the same time, the United States does not have to give up anything by pursuing this type of engagement. As the President repeatedly said, we retained all of our capabilities with respect to Iran and all of our commitments to our partners in the region. Now, a key test for our engagement with Iran continues to be Syria, where a more constructive Iranian policy would be important to resolving the conflict. And we've been very open uh, to having Iran play a role, uh, provided it can be constructive uh, in the political process. That has not yet been forthcoming. 
still we are in a better position on this and other issues by having contacts with the Iranian government. And we must sustain those contacts and look for opportunities to make progress in different areas going forward. And second, Iran, just like every other country, is not a monolith. And I think this is something uh, that I personally uh, have learned through my own dealings with Cuba. Uh, oftentimes we see these countries that we don't have relations with uh, as just a monolithic leadership. Uh, but in fact, uh, there is a diversity of views inside uh, many uh, different countries, even those that have more closed systems than ours. Now those who favor closer ties between the United States and Iran must acknowledge and flatly reject uh, the Iranian regime's violation of international norms uh, and the type of bigotry that can lead it to fire missiles painted with death to Israel. Yet those who criticize the regime must acknowledge the simple fact that there is a difference between the policies and approach of a Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and Hassan Rouhani. The insistence that everyone in Iran's government is a hardliner, cut from the same cloth, willfully rejects any opportunity for Iran's own leaders to move in a different direction. It's self-defeating. It also ignores the role of the Iranian people, many of whom clearly favor a more moderate direction. Third, the United States must continue to find ways to engage the Iranian people. And this is something that uh, doesn't always get the attention it uh, deserves. Their role in the nuclear deal is often underappreciated. After all, even as Iran is not a full de democracy, it was an election that brought President Rouhani into office. And public opinion clearly favored a nuclear deal. So we should continue to pursue the type of educational, cultural, and people-to-people -people openings that can build trust and ties with the Iranian people, particularly young people. Iran, like any country, is going to change in the coming years and decades. We should make clear to the generation that will step forward that there is no reason why we have to remain in a cycle of conflict. And finally, we'll take the continued ideas, advocacy, and engagement of non-governmental groups like the Iran Project to have the kinds of two, uh, track two conversations that can identify possible opportunities, to push back against the inevitable, if not constant, efforts to undermine the implementation of the nuclear deal, and to add another voice uh, to our own foreign policy debate, which uh, rarely rewards unconventional thinking. You know, time and again, President Obama has said that there is a clear pathway to improve relations between the United States and Iran, one that would be good for the Iranian people and their integration into the global economy, good for the community of nations. Ultimately, how far Iran moves down that path is dependent upon the decisions and actions of its own leaders. If they fail to take that course, President Obama has shown that engagement doesn't deny us the capacity to impose consequences. Indeed, it can help uh, the capacity to impose consequences. But if they do, it would be good for Iran, it'd be good for the United States, and it'd be good for the world. So we have a responsibility, always, to leave a doorway open uh, to that different future. Uh, and as we've seen with the nuclear deal, uh, you can end up uh, a lot further down the road than I think you would have ever anticipated uh, when we began that diplomacy in 2009. Uh, so uh, to conclude, uh, I do think it's worth reflecting on the fact that uh, we've actually come a lot farther than I think we would have anticipated, uh, either at the beginning of the administration or even at the beginning uh, of this effort um, that began at the UN General Assembly in 2013. We have enormous differences uh, with Iran, uh, and that's going to continue to be the case for years to come, even if uh, there is progress in other areas. Uh, but again, we have to continue to look for those opportunities uh, to move the relationship forward in ways that uh, advance our own interests, uh, and that ultimately I think would be good for the Iranian people. So thanks very much, and Stephen. 
That was great, Ben. Thank you. It's terrific. Thank you very, very much, Ben. That was a, a really terrific overview of the, of the process, the challenges, and of the status of where we are now and where we might go in the future. A couple of opening questions to get the conversation started. Um, it won't surprise you that I feel a certain sense of responsibility on behalf of the people in this room to ask you a little bit about the David Samuels profile in the New Yorker, in the New York Times Magazine. Um, and you made uh, an allusion to this in your own remarks. I guess the question on the minds of many of us is, what were the messages you hoped to convey in those interviews? <laughs> and what, if any, parts of the piece uh, do you find inaccurate in terms of yeah. representing your views? Well, look, I, uh, I, I, I simultaneously uh, you know, held up as some spin master uh, uh, and also held up as someone who uh, obviously had uh, views conveyed in an article about them that uh, don't always align with my own. I'd say um, uh, just a couple of things about where I think the uh, you know, differences are, inaccuracies, if you, if you will. Um, you know, first of all, there was uh, obviously a statement that I totally disagree with, um, which is that uh, the notion of there being a more moderate Iranian leadership that came into power, uh, that, that that had been kind of an invented reality mm. um, that was <clears throat> utilized to sell the deal. And, you know, first of all, it's not hard to fact check the notion that we were not getting anywhere on nuclear talks, and then all of a sudden we were. Uh, um, I mean, the, the pace at which things moved after the Rouhani election leading into UNGA and then to the JAPOA is an evident fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that uh, the shift in direction under uh, President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif is an evident fact. So uh, to me, that's you know, a fairly simple uh, uh, truth to state and, and you know, something that I obviously uh, did not agree with. And in fact, even you know, if the subtext of that is that we uh, were you know, selling a nuclear deal when in fact what we really wanted to do was uh, you know, change our relationship with Iran, this is a question that came up again and again in that period of time. And we always said, look, we would like it if Iran uh, took this opportunity to evolve in a different direction, but we would do the nuclear deal even if they don't. And in mm -hmm. fact, the nuclear deal becomes almost more important if they don't because you don't want a, an adversarial regime like that to have a nuclear weapon. That's the first point. And the second point is the, uh, the impression um, that was left that there was something uh, manipulative about the way in which we disseminated information or worked with groups like the Iran Project and others. L as I said, and I said this you know, shortly after the article in a, in, in a medium post, the, the groups we worked with were groups that uh, had advocated on this issue for years. Um, so they did not need to be moved to uh, the position of supporting the deal or uh, disseminating specific information. It is true, and I am proud of the fact that there was very effective messaging and in some cases coordination. Um, th that's, uh, I, that was essential given the fact that there were far more resources and a far more aggressive effort to disseminate and coordinate information on the other side of the deal. Right. Exactly. Um, I don't remember us being the, uh, uh, you know, the favorite in that fight. Uh, you know, we were kind of out of our weight class in some ways. And, and so yes, the ability for us to 
to, to be constantly putting out information about very technical and difficult issues, and the ability for there to be organizations and groups that shared our views and were similarly uh, uh, pushing out arguments uh, on behalf of the deal um, was an absolute necessity for a tough foreign policy debate. Uh, and if anything, um, it's a type of approach that um, has been you know, pursued on the opposite end of this debate for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I you know, obviously didn't, you know, I, I didn't like the, the manner in which the appearance was left that that, that was somehow uh, entirely a, uh, you know, a, a essentially a communications approach of the White House and not rather an example of like-minded people and organizations uh, working together to make a case for something that they believed in very deeply. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of that, I'm very proud. Um, and look, anything in, in the Iran space gets, um, you know, if, if it would be a, a 3 out of 10 on another issue, it's 11 out of 10 uh, on Iran. So, um, you know, I think that's the, um, you know, I know that, like, I, I, I'm not going to go uh, line by line, but I mean, I, I think those are the two core things on the mm -hmm. Iran question, um, you know, that, uh, that were the the center of that debate. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I sincerely appreciate your willingness to, to address this issue. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, the, the kind of people in this room and people all over this city and elsewhere worked very hard for a long time to help create the conditions where this kind of process might have a chance to succeed and then helped in the, in the process of making sure it withstood uh, the politics. And, and the work of the White House was essential in this. And I also want to say on behalf of people in this room that in you, we always found a partner who was accessible, who was straightforward, and who was helpful. And, and there wasn't always 100% agreement on every, on every matter. And that's the way it should be. So I thank you both for answering the question and for the work that you did to help make this a success, because it is an extraordinarily important accomplishment. I've pointed out uh, frequently that many of the groups uh, who agreed with us on the round deal returned immediately to criticizing us on many other issues after this. Uh, the same would be true of, I think, some of the journalists mentioned in the article. So it, yeah. is, it is what it is. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's now turn a little bit to, to the future. And you've laid this out very nicely in your remarks. Obviously, this deal, by agreement going into it, by both parties was strictly limited to the nuclear issue. It was not a negotiation that was designed to be a prelude to a grand bargain, addressing all of the other challenges in the US-Iran relationship or in Iran's behavior in the region. And yet those issues are very much in the minds of all of us and in our concerns. So let's start with Syria, if we could. You mentioned this, of course, as well. I just happened to get back yesterday from the Oslo Forum, uh, where both Secretary Kerry and Foreign Minister Zarif participated and spoke. And they met privately, as they, as they said to um, the group assembled there, uh, for about an hour um, before Secretary Kerry spoke um, yesterday morning. And it's clear from both of their comments that they talked a lot about Syria and that there is at least some hint, some indication that there may be more opportunity for the US and Iran and others to work together in the weeks ahead on a path toward a political solution. And that Iran is um, slowly moving 
toward becoming a more constructive participant in that process. Can you say anything more about the White House view of how the Syria process is unfolding? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we took the, um, uh, we took the approach, uh, certainly in the aftermath of the, the Iran deal, that um, if, you, if you are trying to have an internationally supported and, and brokered, in many respects, um, political resolution to the Syrian conflict, uh, that your ability uh, to achieve that um, is going to be enhanced significantly if you have all the key parties at the table. Um, and the Iranians had not always been a part of those discussions. Uh, so we made a very you know, a deliberate effort and decision uh, to say that you know, Iran should be at the table. Um, and of course, uh, they and Russia are the two principal sponsors of the Assad regime. And we and many others have been supporting uh, different elements of the opposition. Um, so the first point is simply that, uh, it, it, in our view, it's easier to get to a solution if you have all the relevant parties at the table. And that, by definition, uh, should uh, include the Iranians. That doesn't mean at all that we agree with or in any way are accepting of their policy. It just means that uh, that's a clearer path to, to a diplomatic resolution. Uh, the second point, I guess, is that uh, they have not altered course, but the argument we make to them, which is not entirely dissimilar to the argument we make to Russia, is that uh, their own policy is unsustainable. Um, that there is not a military solution uh, to the situation in Syria, that Assad cannot regain control of certainly, you know, a significant majority Sunni areas. Um, and, you know, frankly for them, um, they're bleeding resources. Um, uh, this is adding to the instability in their region. So they have their own national interest in getting to a solution. Um, I think actually that basic point uh, that everybody shares an interest in having this come to an end and that it can end militarily, that is actually, uh, I think, something that is understood and accepted by everybody. Um, the question is on what, whose terms, mm -hmm. and it's really hinged on Assad and, mm -hmm. and the nature of his departure. And the Iranians have not moved on that. Um, you know, I think they've, so, you know, right now the, the opportunities before them, um, I think the Russians have come in in a, you know, obviously a much heavier way in the last year, which has made them a focal point of, of diplomatic efforts in the recent cessation of hostilities. Uh, I think for the Iranians, it, you know, uh, uh, it, you know if, if they could move in a constructive direction, that would go a long way towards um, demonstrating that, uh, you know, they can play a more constructive role in regional issues. The last thing I'd say about this, though, is it's also tied up in their own system and, and who is making the decisions mm -hmm. about their Syria policy and who's representing them in discussions and who's you know, representing them on the ground yeah. in Syria. Well, and in that regard, uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, again, seemed to be hinting that the, the responsibility within the Iranian system was also um, in some flux and that perhaps um, the Foreign Ministry itself and the government of President Rouhani was um, being given space to, to take more leadership in this regard. You know, that's always a hard uh, judgment to make. Um, I think what is clear is that um, they were ultimately empowered to negotiate an agreement that, on the, on the nuclear side, that touched at you know, a core national security interest of the Iranian state. Um, so the notion that uh, 
that is impossible or cannot be uh, replicated in, in other areas has already been in some ways disproven. Mm -hmm. You had very prominent voices um, from other elements of the Iranian system who repeatedly, repeatedly uh, sought to criticize, undermine uh, the nuclear negotiations. Uh, if you read the Iranian respective press, uh, you could tell, you know, based on who kind of uh, was behind a certain commentary right. where these players lined up. So it does prove the point that it is possible uh, for there to be an assertion of, uh, of, of responsibility uh, within the presidency or the foreign ministry. But I wouldn't want to read those tea leaves quite yet on Syria. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to uh, open it up to the audience now. Ben has said that he can stay a, a little bit longer, um, so we have a little more time, which is just terrific, and we appreciate it. So, yes, sir. And please, again, note in front of you, and then I'll, I'll get to you in a minute. I'm calling on him. Hi, I'm Glenn Schweitzer from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And we've been involved in exchange programs for the last 15 years. I have two questions. Uh, the first one relates to Annex 3 of J, uh, the JCPOA, which calls for civil nuclear co uh, civil cooperation, and nothing's happened. Uh, some of those areas where we are committed to promoting uh, cooperation are far, uh, light years from the core issues like eye surgery, <coughs> like plasma physics, like neutrino astronomy. When can we see some action in activating Annex 3, which is a win-win for both sides? Okay, thank My you. second question has to do with the other exchanges. Uh, while we have jumped over lots of hurdles in the last 15 years to promote scientific exchanges, the hurdles are getting higher rather than lower. And that's because I'm not quite sure why, but every day I, I get, receive complaints from all over the country as to the difficulty of cooperating, difficulties caused by the government in cooperating with, uh, with Iran. And I wondered, I won't go into the, the specifics yeah. now, when can we expect some uh, a careful look at how we exchange with uh, Iran. Let yeah. me, can I collect a few so that sure, we, sure. So that we uh, are efficient? Since the mic is there, we'll go right behind. And try to, everybody do try to keep them short so that we can get a lot of voices in. My name is Pete McDonald. I served many years ago on foreign service in Iran. Question to you, sir. Uh, there was a time when relations between Iran and Israel were quite friendly. Certainly, certainly they weren't enemies. Uh, now, uh, the Israelis claim that Iran is a deep, uh, vital enemy. Uh, my question is, is, the, is that a fact? Is there a reason for Iran to be hostile to Israel? And if that... Uh, is not true, what is the motive for uh, Israel to claim that there is enmity? And I guess in answering that question, the question of Israel's profound uh, uh, objection to the nuclear arrangement fits into the picture. Okay, one, one more in this round in the very back. Uh, 
Jim Jeffrey, Washington Institute. Ben, when you began, you painted a picture of a shift to diplomacy sort of away from confrontation in 2009 when President Obama came in. Uh, I was one of the people doing Iran in the last administration, and gosh, that doesn't ring with what I remember, which is we joined the P5 plus one in 2006. We worked with the international community, get five UN resolutions before the end of 2008, worked a deal in Iraq that among other things got our troops out of there by the end of 2011 on paper, and uh, acknowledged publicly that Iran had ended its uh, weaponization program in 2003. So if there was a march to war that you guys stopped in 2009, could you give us specifics on what it was? So, uh, I'll, I'll start with Jim's question, which is always <laughs> well stated. Uh, no, look, Jim, actually, I'd say a couple of things about this. Um, you know, first of all, um, the sense I had from the outside, I wasn't in, there for the previous administration, is um, that there was a bit of a shift towards the, in the second part of the Bush administration towards a greater openness to work through the P5 plus one. Um, and we were certainly aware of that. Uh, we were aware of that. Uh, to the extent that um, Bill Burns, uh, who had been you know, working on some of those issues, uh, can, carried it forward um, as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. Um, at the same time, I think there was a diversity of views um, in, the, in the previous administration that um, uh, had us also wondering in the you know, 2007, 2008, as to whether or not um, there might be uh, a confrontation with Iran. What I said in my remarks was not that there was a march to war, but that there was a, a, a potential drift towards confrontation, that the trend lines were a nuclear program that was uh, you know, continuing to kind of march along and make some progress, uh, very acute security differences inside of Iraq, which uh, you, know, you and I uh, had spent time discussing when you were ambassador there. And that what I think was different is that President Obama came into office with, as kind of a signature issue, the notion that he was going to pursue diplomacy with Iran. In his inaugural address, he will extend a hand to those who unclench a fist. The, the Nowruz message trying to speak directly to the leaders and people of Iran. The use of, uh, from him, the Islamic Republic of Iran in that message to kind of set a context that we're not pursuing regime change. Um, so uh, I don't want to suggest it was 180 degrees, but I do think there was a kind of a notable shift in we are prioritizing diplomacy. We are not setting regime changes policy. Um, and this is going to be a top foreign policy priority. So I think you offer an important amendment. Um, uh, and, and that's, I would, you know, contextualize it um, uh, in, the way, in the way that I did. And I think what was borne out by that is that the president, you know, stuck with this policy for seven years. Um, he kept coming back to diplomacy um, because it was a, a, you know, kind of a core issue for him. Um, the, uh, on on the, the previous question, I'll just go in reverse order. You know, I think uh, with respect to Israel's view of Iran, I think they have a, a number of very valid concerns. Um, one is just very specifically, uh, they have on their borders uh, Hezbollah, which is an organization that um, they have uh, had, you know, Israeli lives have been taken by Hezbollah. They fought wars with Hezbollah. Uh, and Hezbollah's military capability and certainly its rocket capability, which poses a threat to Israel, um, emanates from Iran. Uh, and that's a very specific security challenge. Um, the second uh, 
thing I would offer is just the ideology uh, that uh, emanates from Iran, which at times is you know, flagrantly anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. Um, not only is there a ballistic missile test, but you know, the death to Israel is written on the missile. It, you know, it, it does suggest a, 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 a merger of you know, concrete security challenges you know, as manifested by Hezbollah, as just to take one example, and um, uh, the, uh, the kind of potential for an ideology that ties into that, that, you know, would certainly concern me if I was uh, Israeli. Um, all of that said, um, the nuclear deal, uh, you actually see, I think, a recognition inside of Israel, uh, growing recognition that this may very well prove to be in their interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have statements to that effect from the head of the IDF and many other members of the Israeli security establishment. They now know that that mixture of a security threat and an ideology cannot reach an existential level through a nuclear weapon. Uh, and that was always our case, is that, is that you know, being able to provide that assurance um, uh, would ultimately be good for Israel's security. Now, I know the prime minister would not <laughs> agree with that view, but um, uh, I think you know, our hope is that that becomes evident. I don't think that uh, Israel and Iran are fated, though, to be uh, permanent enemies. Um, and uh, uh, no, no two countries are. I mean, I, I, I say that with the benefit of having just gone on a fairly remarkable trip where we went to Vietnam and were greeted by two and a half million people on the motorcade route in from the airport, cheering and in some cases waving American flags, and then going to Hiroshima and being welcomed by uh, uh, if not millions, definitely thousands of people uh, welcoming us. And, uh, you know, so that makes you realize that uh, what might seem impossible today is, is certainly possible, and nobody is, is fated um, to be enemies. And, and by the way, the preference shouldn't be uh, permanent conflict. I mean, I, I think sometimes um, I was struck in the Iran debate, and this is not in the Israel context, this is actually in the American context, that it was almost... I would wonder whether when people would discuss scenarios of Iran evolving in a more positive direction, that seemed to be almost the thing that people were, were, were uh, opposed to, as if it had to stay in this, um, in this clenched up conflict. Um, on the first question, uh, on, the, on the cooperation, I, I, look, I think on the front end of this deal, um, there is just such an enormous amount of effort that is going into the kind of reorientation and rolling back of the Iranian program the compliance uh, being put into place, the monitoring mechanisms, um, that, uh, that's uh, our focus. Um, now in the longer term, as, uh, you know, as Iran um, you know, figures out how it's going to um, make use of its remaining program for issues like medical research and, 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 the, and the like, um, you know, then I think that becomes a more, uh, you know, pressing question. I do think that, you know, uh, uh, for the United States, we would not likely be uh, in the middle of that conversation with the Iranians. But, but look, I mean, if they, if they are demonstrating, the basic principle is if they're demonstrating that this is peaceful um, and it, it's for uh, the, the types of nuclear uh, um, energy that can serve a, a humanitarian or medical purpose, uh, then I think you know, we make plain in there that uh, those types of uh, activities are, are, are certainly authorized. They'll be monitored so people can see what they're doing and, and, and they can have conversations with other countries. I agree with uh, your, your second question, the premise of it. You know, I think 
you know, if there's an area where I think we can do more, uh, I think student exchanges, uh, scientific exchanges, cultural exchanges, it's a good place to start um, in trying to build some trust and some relationships. And they're quite minimal with Iran right now. Um, and some of those are for you know, valid reasons, if, if any of those in the past had been exploited. Um, but I do think there are ways of, of tailoring these that you know, serve a very a good purpose. It are in, it's in our national interest to have that engagement. It's, you know, it's certainly in the Iranian people's interest. So this is something I think we are looking at what can be done in this space. Um, with, with our remaining time, but I would also urge uh, whoever comes next to look at this. And often the barriers come from, there's so many restrictions, congressionally many of them <laughs> congressionally imposed, that n navigating a kind of the labyrinth of, of setting up an exchange can be quite difficult. So it would actually take kind of a concerted effort um, on our part to try to find the way to pry that open. I've been given the signal that we have to let Ben. No, we can. We can, can we? Yeah, yeah, can we go sure. on? We can do All one right. more round. Okay. So, so Barbara is uh, one of our co-hosts. We'll get one more round. Yeah. Barbara, and then Trita, and then. Um, I, okay. Yeah. Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council, and welcome to the Atlantic Council, which is co-sponsoring this along with the Iran Project. Um, my question is about uh, multinational lending to Iran particularly things like the Global Environmental Fund. U.S. has blocked these kinds of loans in the past. Iran has severe environmental problems, could desperately use that sort of support. Are we going to change our policy on that and let that go forward? Thank you. Yeah, and we have, we have three others here. Hi, Ben. John Hudson with Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, can the Iran deal survive a Trump presidency? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for a brief question. As you see, insert insert other phrase, Congressman. That's it. I have to keep it to three. I'm very sorry. Thank you very much. It's on. Jim Slattery, Now you. I think maybe you switched it off. There we go. There you go. Jim Slattery with Wiley Ryan. I'm just curious. What can the administration do? assuming they're supportive of the Boeing transaction to make it happen? Um, so, um, uh, on, the, on the first question, um, so, uh, first of all, uh, we have to look at, um, in any case of an international lending institution, um, you know, what the congressional, uh, uh, if there are any congressional restrictions, and, and so I'm, I'm acknowledging I'm not aware, I'm not, you know, intimately familiar with each institution, but I, I, I've, I live this much more in the weeds in the Cuba context where we are restricted um, from uh, supporting that type of uh, engagement. That may not be the case with Iran, but I, so I just state that at the opening. I, I think it's something that um, we would definitely want to look at. Um, on kind of a case-by-case -case basis. And this is another area where if people consider, you know, where are their potential openings for progress, um, you know, we would probably want to make sure that uh, there was a clear um, uh, indication of where exactly funding was going to go, that it couldn't be redirected for some other purpose, that, so that there was an accounting mechanism and an accountability mechanism that could demonstrate that uh, funds wouldn't be misappropriated for uh, uh, purposes other than their intention. Um, so I think that would be the principle that would guide how we would look at each one of these. 
Um, but I think with those two caveats, um, you know, meeting our uh, legislative obligations and uh, uh, making sure there's a careful accounting, that you know, this is something that you know, we should very much and could very much look at um, on kind of a case-by-case -case basis. And in the past, we have been able to find some areas where you know, we can be not just okay with, but supportive of Iranian engagement with the international community. So this is an area, I think, uh, that, that, that we could give a focus to going forward. On the, uh, I'll just do Boeing next, because. Uh, um, you don't want to answer an overtly no, political actually, I'm question. I'm just getting ready know, for that. Uh, on Boeing, uh, let me just say that, uh, look, the, uh, for, the, for the US uh, government, um, w you know, obviously the, the deal itself allows for licensing in the civil aviation space. Um, so that provides an opening for um, our civil aviation companies to pursue legitimate commerce with, uh, uh, with Iran. Um, we generally don't, um, uh, you know, in, in, in those processes, uh, become public advocates for individual companies uh, simply because we actually, that has more to do with our other, you know, uh, advocating for one American company as against another. Um, so just as a statement of, uh, uh, you know, policy though, I, you know, I think it's, we made very clear civil aviation was something that we carved out for licensing in the deal. and. That is something that uh, uh, that that American companies can uh, uh, can can pursue. Um, with respect to the uh, other question, um, here's what, I mean. What I've said about you know what I'd say about this is uh, the the way in which the Iran deal is structured um, creates enormous. And, and by the way, this wasn't really intentional. It's just because we front loaded commitments. Uh, which is what you would try to do in an arms control agreement. The way in which the Iran deal is structured creates enormous disincentives for an incoming president to tear it up. Um, you know, you would essentially come into office with all of the major nuclear commitments having been completed, um, with the stockpile out of the country, with the uh, Iraq reactor reconfigured, with no enrichment at Fordow, with all of these centrifuges under... Uh, IAA monitoring, and you would essentially decide that you want to get rid of all those limitations on the Iranian program. You would precipitate a crisis um, in all likelihood uh, in that Iran would then be advancing once more towards uh, potentially having a nuclear weapons uh, capacity. You would be alienating the United States from all of our key allies who helped us negotiate this deal, uh, our major European allies, the Chinese, the Russians, um, and you would be doing that for what purpose? Um, you, you know, having worked for a president who had to come into office with enough problems, I think a basic principle is you don't come into office and create a massive new problem for yourself. Um, uh, so I can't speak to the, the individual uh, candidates. Um, but I can say that uh, you know, I think it would be uh, counter not just to US interest, but counter to the whole concept of how one initiates a presidency to decide that one of the very first things I'm going to do is precipitate a crisis in the Middle East 
that leads to potential nuclear proliferation or another war there. Um, it just doesn't seem like a very um, wise thing to do. And difficulties yeah. with our allies yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, please join me in thanking Ben. That was terrific. Thank you very much. <laughs>